Lord, we ask you to just bless this time as we look at your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study and, and look at your word and get to know you better as a, as a body. We ask you to guide and lead in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 61, we're going to be starting at verse 4 for, for this, but just to get us up to speed, last week we talked about uh, the prisoners being set free, and, we, and I think we're going to read the first three, even just to get us some context on it, because what we're going to go into, even though it's a new paragraph, still refers to the people being talked about last week's lesson. So we're going to start at verse uh, 1 just to read, and then we'll talk about 4 as we go to take things apart. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our Lord, of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes and oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build the old waste, and they shall raise up the former desolation, and they shall repair the waste cities and the desolation of many generations. The strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall be eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall you boast yourself. For your shame shall you have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in the land they shall possess the double, everlasting joy shall be given unto them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offerings, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. Therefore, as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the living things that are sown in it to spring forth, so shall the Lord God cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. So the reason I bring this up is because we have to be able to follow the they's and the you's in this, this statement, because who are the they? Those who have been delivered from the, from the prisons, those who have been uh, appointed to, to mourn, are, are the they. The, the you that God is talking to are most likely his, his children, Israel, possibly we can look at it being the church. All right, as we get into this. And we know that Jesus, on that first part, when he stood up in Nazareth and proclaimed the, the message, the first part of Isaiah is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and to, to send me to bring, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So this is what Jesus said is definitely referring to him in the very beginning. He is the one that proclaims the liberty and the brokenhearted, which is why a lot of people will say this is the church, is the you. All right? And there's some 
good reasons for believing that as we go through this. So in verse 4, and they shall build up the old waste, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities and the desolation of many generations. The day, those who have been, been uh, delivered. So we, who are the ones that have been delivered? Mostly Gentiles. And this is the thing that is going to be very interesting. The Jews never saw the Gentiles as being worth any attention. You know, they, they, many of the rabbis have, are on record as saying the Gentiles were, be, uh, were, were brought under this earth to, to create fuel for hell. That's how they looked at Gentiles, to create fuel for hell. That's why we were created, we were rejected by God, God created us just to throw us into hell. Um, what, a, what a loving God they follow. <laughs> um, but you know, that's not too far-fetched. There's a lot of Christians that almost have that same attitude. If somebody is not worthy of being a Christian, they would here to be thrown into hell. And then when you get into hyper-Calvinism, that's the same way. If you're, not, if you're not predestined to come to God, then you're predestined to go to hell, and there's nothing that you can do to change that. There is no, no whosoever will verses in their doctrine. Okay? So this is not far-fetched. That attitude is not far-fetched. There's a big part of this that is the we and they syndrome. We're, we're Christians and everybody else is going to hell and, and if we're not careful, we could be, who cares? And we need to be very careful about that because it's easy to get there. You know, we come to our church, we have our, have our Bible studies, we have our good fellowship, we like being with each other and can oftentimes forget about all the people around us that are going to hell if we don't spread the gospel. And this is why it's our job to go out and you know, at the bare minimum, give tracts, talk about God, let them know that you're a Christian so that they see you and will watch. But it's important for us that people know we're Christians and know why we're different. And hopefully we are living a different life. You know, I love it because I get asked a lot of times, why are you happy all the time? Why do you seem to be in a good mood? Why, why are you so nice? Whatever, whatever question that they ask me, it's like, oh, do you really want to know? Oh, yeah, I really want to know. Okay, then you asked for it. Here we go. You know, and give them the gospel message about God. Do we have a lifestyle that draws people to ask us why we're different? Why, 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 do, we, why do we seem to be in a, you know, and none of us will ever always be happy. None of us will always be, you know, good natured. But you know what I'm saying. You know, there's certain people that you look at them and just say, this person's got it all together. And if you want to talk to them, you probably find out that they know Jesus, all right? And so that's what we are supposed to do as we go through this. And, it, and he says, we, the redeemed, the, the ones that have had their chains taken off, will build up the old waste and the desolated places. This is very much a picture of what's going to happen to Israel. Israel is going to go into captivity. When Isaiah's preaching, it's, the Babylonians are going to come very soon and, and take, the, take over Israel, destroy their cities, and it won't be, it'll be 80 years before they return, or 70 years until they return. And everything's destroyed and they have to rebuild. How many times have we as Christians had to rebuild? Religious, religious entities. People who get so wrapped up in their religion. And this is serious because even churches can get wrapped up in religion. And, and that's a bunch of rules. 
do this, do that, and you will be happy and please God. And if you don't do these things, you're not pleasing God. You know, it's easy to get wrapped up in those things. Yes, there are things that are, have good rewards and are good to do. But they don't get us any closer to God. God loves us completely. He clothes us with his righteousness and says we're perfect. Just because we go to church, read our Bible, even witness and lead people to Christ does not make us any more loved by God. And that's hard to understand. A lot of people don't even like that idea. There are a lot of pastors who would never teach that because they're afraid their people would never go out and do anything. Because I look at it the opposite. The more we love God and fall in love with him, the more we should be telling people about God, not because I'm trying to get brownie points with him, but just because I love him and I want others to get to know him. I want everybody to know God because God is the best thing in this world. You know, and I've shared with people, you know, because one of the things in evangelism will tell you, you know, somebody gives you what they believe and your good question for them is, what if you're wrong? The only thing is, if you use that, be ready for them to ask, what if you're wrong? And I have a great answer. If I'm wrong, I've lost nothing. I've lived a joyful, happy life for the most part. God has been in control. And if there is no God and there is no heaven, I have lost nothing because of all the blessings I've got in this world. Now, because of the blessings I have in this world, I know <laughs> that God is true for the future. So I don't have to, but even if, there, even if for some strange reason it's not true, I've lost nothing. I've, I've had a good time with God. I've been blessed by God. He's given me peace that passes understanding to walk through this world in the middle of trials, in the middle of tri tribulation, knowing that it is him in control. So I lose nothing. The person who says there is no God and no heaven and earth, if they're wrong, they've got quite a gamble on their hands. You know, if you're wrong, you know, you've lost everything. You, you have not even been happy on this world, and you're going to look back and think that this world was a good place. And that's the, that's the problem. We have heaven to look forward to. And for me, I'm not going to say it's been heaven on earth, but God has been in charge, so it's not been all that bad either. And for us as Christians, you know, even though God has blessed and given us peace of passes understanding, this world is going to be as close to hell as we ever see. And it's not, it's not close to hell. The really sad thing is, for those who reject Jesus, this is as much heaven as they're going to have. And it is definitely not heaven. And yet, they're going to look back on it and say, I wish I was back on that earth again with all the pain and suffering that I went through because of how bad hell is going to be. We come in and we restore the broken down places. We restore relationships with God. We restore the idea that we are with God. And the sad thing is there's so many people that are just bound up in religion. You know, doing, doing, doing. And Jesus himself said, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he lists off a whole bunch of religious things. I fed the hungry. I clothed the... I clothed the the homeless, I gave shelter to people, I went to the prisons, I did this, I did that. And Jesus' answer to them is, depart from me, I never knew you. He told the Pharisees the same thing. He's called them a brood of vipers. And they did all those things. Outwardly, they looked like they were good people. They ministered to the poor, they gave lots of money to the, to the tabernacle, or the temple, they helped people. Now they did it to show off, they did it for all the wrong reasons, but they they did all the religious things. And it was nothing but ruins. 
because it's man's strength. And this is something that is going to be happening out there that he says they're going to repair. And basically, these Gentiles, the church, are going to repair all the desolation. The Jews never saw the coming of the Gentiles. Now, Paul kept telling them when he preached, this is what was told you. You were told this, you were told this, you were told this. He goes, you never saw it coming because he never saw it coming when he was trained. And remember, Paul was trained by Gamaliel, the number three greatest teacher of Jewish history ever. So he had the best teacher of the law during his day. And the number three of all time. And he says, I didn't even understand it because it, my eyes have been opened up. How many times do we read the Bible and all of a sudden our eyes get opened up to something we never, never understood, never saw? And it never changes. I don't care how long you've been reading the Bible and studying it, it will never change. It is fun to be reading after 48 years and saying, wow, I've never noticed that before, God. Yeah, and it's a great place to be. He always opens up new things for us to see, new areas to be rebuilt. And it says, very interestingly, the stranger shall stand and feed your flocks, and the son of the alien shall be your plowman and your vine dresser. This has two different opinions. Some people think it's actual, literal, and it'll be the millennial kingdom. And I have no problem with it. That's a valid, valid type of look at it. When, the, when Jesus rules from Israel, uh, Jerusalem, during the millennial kingdom, Israel becomes the center of everything. And all the, all the Gentiles. But we can also look again, is this the church? The church is doing what the Jews were supposed to do, and that is bring people to God. Feeding the flock. Managing the flock that's out there. Jesus said the harvest is ready, he told the disciples, and, but the harvesters are few. Pray for harvesters. Now, and this is serious business out there. There are millions of people dying every day. You know, even before COVID-19, there were millions of people dying every day going into eternity, the majority of which are going into hell. And this is something that should really motivate us. There's a this statistic I read said there's one person every eight seconds dying. That's a lot of people. Every eight seconds, which means every minute, just under eight people die every minute. When we think about that. That's a lot of people. A lot of people dying. Are we really taking it serious to reach out and be adding to God's flock and sharing the gospel message? And it can be as simple as passing out tracts. If you're afraid to talk to people, pass out tracts. Now, and then watch how God will eventually teach you to talk to them. <laughs> but we take one step at a time and just reach out. You know, and I've shared with people, we've got the tracks here. If we can just give each person to pass one track out each day. You know, and it could be as simple as, I'm too afraid to even talk to somebody, I'll put the track on their car. <laughs> you know, whatever it might take you know, to get those out. Are we ready to be able to stand forth and do anything for God? How many of our relatives need to be reached for God? You know, we need to be doing these things and feeding the flocks. And it says the aliens, the, the Gentiles, 
will be taking care of your plows, your fields, and your vineyards. So he says, and we see this, like I say, two different directions. They take it literally in the millennial kingdom, and I think it's both. I really do think it's both. The millennial kingdom, where it will literally be true, and also the church coming in and feeding the flock of the Gentiles, feeding, taking, and plowing the fields and, and bringing in people for God. The Jews decided not to, and, they, you know, and decided to push Gentiles further and further away from them. And God says, fine, you go sit in the corner for a while, and I will use the Gentiles. And he's used the Gentiles for about 2,000 years now. Well, how much longer? Don't know. Don't know how much longer it'll be before he takes the church out. And once he takes the church out, he goes back to Israel and says, okay, it's your turn again. As the Antichrist comes in and, and makes life miserable for them, trying to destroy them. And then finally, when he stands up in the, middle, in, the, in the temple and declares that he is God, God will open the Jewish eyes and they will say, we've been deceived. We've been tricked. This is not God. And they will turn to God. And how that happens, I don't know. How God will open up their eyes and make them really see what's going on. When God turns his mind to make something happen, it'll happen. Maybe there'll be a great teacher that everybody will listen to. Who knows? How they will, but it says that all the Jews at that time will turn their eyes to God. Because they know that they've been tricked. But until then, the church. The church is going and then during the millennial kingdom, all this stuff will actually be true for them. Gentiles will minister to them and for them, and they will rule. Verse 6 says, But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast yourself. So here he goes back to Israel. But you. All right? So he switched from them to you. It says, you shall be named the priest of the Lord, or proclaimed the priest of the Lord. Israel was designated to be the priest of the Lord. They were to bring the Gentiles into worship with God. And in actuality, I've always thought this, the Jews performed the, the role of the priest offering the sacrificed lamb for Passover. They're the one that put Jesus to the cross. Now, the Romans got to be the one that put him on the cross, but they brought Jesus, and they presented him to be slaughtered, which is exactly what would happen. The, the lamb was brought to the priest, and the lamb was killed for the, for the Passover. And Jesus was presented by his people who were the priest of the world. Now, they had rejected that role, but God still used them in that role to present the, the, the Passover lamb. Now, having said that, a lot of times there's debate on who killed Jesus. You know, they'll try to blame the Jews, and the Jews have been blamed for a long time, especially by the Catholic Church. They killed Jesus. All right? And in one sense, they did. They presented him to Rome and brought the charges against him. Others will say adamantly, the Romans killed him, and they're the ones that actually put the nails in his hand. Others, on the more spiritual side, that says all of us killed Jesus because of our sin. All three of those groups take a small amount of the, the blame. But who actually put the son on the cross is the father. Why did he do so? So that we could be forgiven of our sins. And the scriptures tells us that it pleased the father to do so. And that's hard to, hard to imagine. 
you know, but his mind was not on the suffering of Jesus at the, on the cross. His mind was not on the three days in, in uh, the tomb. His mind was us coming to him because of the sacrifice that he made. He knew the son was going to be resurrected. He had no problem with that. But the penalty and the pain still hurt him. And we've talked about this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all hurt on the cross when Jesus became sin. Because they had to separate their perfect unity. There was a pain for all of them. Jesus took the physical pain, but they all took the emotional and spiritual pain of being separated. And that's a pain we really can't understand. You know, the closest we can do is think of the closest relationship we have ever had and then have it ripped to shreds. And then we get some small, minuscule picture of the pain that the Father and Holy Spirit felt when Jesus became sin. And Jesus took even more because he became sin. And then he was separated from the Father as well, and he had to bear that sin and die. You know, what a horrific thing that went on. But the, they, they shall be called the priest of the Lord. And they and men shall call you the ministers of God. Now, right now, the Jews don't have that reputation. They will in the future because they're going to come to God. You know, and the beautiful thing is, we as Christians should have a great love for the, for the Jewish people. You know, 39 books of our Bible come from, their, from them. The 27 books of the New Testament were all written by Jewish men. All right? And it's not until you understand a little bit about Judaism do you fully understand the New Testament. We can understand bits and pieces of the New Testament because it is for Gentiles, but we don't get the full flavor of it until we start understanding the Old Testament. When they start talking about the tabernacle, that has a lot of meaning into it. We spent a long time going over the the tabernacle and how, how it represents the gospel message. So when Paul's talking about the tabernacle, he's thinking about the gospel message. When he thinks about the law of God, you know, he's thinking about how it draws people to him. When he's thinking about how sweet the word is, he's thinking of things like David talking about the word is like honey and is bread to our life. You know, and we go, okay, these things sound really good. And they do. Even to Gentiles, they can sound good. But when we finally start learning the Old Testament and tie them all in, things really sound good. And we start finding the depth of what's out there. And he says, you're going to be called the priest. You're going to be called the ministers. And then he says, kind of an interesting thing. You shall eat the riches of the Gentile, and in their glory you shall boast or be entered into. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. When you look at this word for boast, it means to enter into. Enter into their glory. What is the glory that the Gentiles have? We get saved by Jesus Christ and get clothed in his righteousness and made perfect un by, by the wrapping up in the Holy Spirit. God says, uh, all right, you Jews, eventually you're going to have that same e event with them. You're going to get to know me and be brought into the same glory that the Gentiles have. What was that boast? Um, enter into in this particular case enter into or exchange. So they get to enter into what we have. 
as Christians, not all Gentiles, but the ones who believe in Christ. We're the ones that get the righteousness of Christ. We're the ones that get sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're the ones that get peace that passes understanding. We're the one that gets redeemed you know, on all the things that happen to us. And God says, eventually you're going to get there, guys. <laughs> you know, didn't, they don't realize it's going to be some 3,000 years from the time that Isaiah preaches it before they finally experience it. But it's going to be a while. And this is, this is the beauty of what we have. And sometimes we don't even realize what we have. You know, and this is so many people that say they're saved, and I'm, going to say, I'm not going to say they're not, but they don't seem to understand the beauty of what we have in Christ. You know, we talked before this even started, the simplicity of the gospel message. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I accept that, and I made his, his child. The very simplicity, but it goes so much deeper than that. And the more we get to understand what really happens when we get saved, the deeper and draw, closer we draw to him. When I realize what God thinks of me, I can draw close to him. When we know what God thinks of us, he sees us as perfect. And we know we're not. We know we're terrible, miserable people. But he says, no, you're my child. I see you as perfect. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Get in here. Quit, quit hanging outside the door because you're afraid. Quit, quit blaming yourself for all the things you've done wrong. You're forgiven. This is important for us to get hold of these things. Because too many people get drawn back. I just can't forgive myself for whatever, you know, put, put whatever it is in there. And, and, you know, and to me, that's one of the most idolatrous statements you can make. God can forgive you and you won't forgive yourself? You have higher standards than God? You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Nobody thinks of that as being idolatry. But it really is. I am saying, God, I know you've got your standards and I know they're high, and, but you've forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself? Well, God, I know you've forgiven that person, but I won't forgive them because my standards are higher than your standards? That's idolatry. When we really start thinking about how far idolatry expands, it gets interesting. It's not just putting a statue in our house. You know, it's, it is anything that is placed above God. Anything. And this is where more people are idolatrous without even realizing that they are. Because they go, well, God, I know that you're forgiving, but... I'm just not going to forgive. We need to be so careful because that's idolatry. And we want to be careful of all that. It is very simple to get there. It is very easy to find ourselves in our flesh being there. Sometimes it's done innocently. We don't really know God that well to begin with. And as we get to know him, we start realizing all the idolatry in our life. And you'll find it all the way through. It doesn't matter how long you live. God will show you different places in your life where you have idolatry. You know, and you're going, oh, I never thought about that as being an idol. And God says, yeah, you've placed it above me. This, this area of your life is more important to you than me. And for many people, it comes down to money. Their money is more important to them than God. And their attitudes and their, their attitudes toward others they have higher standards than God has toward them. 
We've got to be careful because idolatry sticks its head up all over our life and needs to be dealt with and followed through with because God says nothing is to be placed above him. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Is it safe to say that the vast majority of the time their sin was idolatry? Of who? Their sin, the vast majority of the time, was it idolatry? At its base. Huh? At its base. At the base level, yes, oh. it would be true. Uh, idolatry directly or just not living up to the standard that God gives us and putting things above God. And like I said, our anger toward people, our lack of forgiveness, our lack of love uh, are all forms of idolatry. So, adultery? Uh, well, adultery is basically, again, the same thing, but no, idolatry. Adultery works out to be the same thing, too, because we're, for, God says to be pure, and we're going, I've got a different standard for it, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, any unfaithfulness to God is considered spiritual adultery. Well, God very clearly says that. That was what he accused Israel of all the time. You have put me aside. You have committed whoredom or adultery. Well, to God. Yeah. 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 And of course, Jesus moved it to even if you think it, you're you're in trouble. But God, but God in the Old Testament kept saying, "You have committed adultery against me by following your following your idols, following your things." They had committed adultery, but at the same time, spiritual adultery was involved in it. God said, you're mine. So every time we sin and reject God and follow some other God other than God, we're committing spiritual adultery. And God still wants us. Yeah. This is the power of when we finally start putting things together. When we sin, it's not just one single sin that we're committing. We sin and we've committed spiritual adultery. We've committed probably idolatry because we've raised something above what God has told us as well as whatever sin that we directly broke. This is how powerful and how wrapped up sin becomes which is why we're told that when we break one sin one commandment we've broken them all because pretty much we've broken several of them just by doing that. Adultery is idolatry. It is putting something before God. It's breaking our word and our promises, so we've lied, and we have adultery, and we've coveted something that wasn't ours. So there's a whole list of things, and in many ways we've committed spiritual murder. In a spiritual level, we've committed murder when we do that. So it is more than just God says, okay, you break one, I consider that you've broken all. It in many ways is literally we have broken many commandments by being... Uh, disobedient. And this is the power of what we need to look at and understand the seriousness of sin is serious. And we, we even as Christians sometimes forget the seriousness of sin and what sin is all about and how devastating it can be because of how encompassing it is on our life. And if we don't repent of 
all portions of it, it's little strongholds all over the place. And Satan loves to get those little strongholds. And he loves to get into our brain and, and, and make us not think about all these things and said, well, I've got you now. And the sad thing is, Satan gets us to sin thinking, okay, well, you can get grace and you'll be forgiven. And then he condemns us for sinning. You know, because he will tell us all about how, how God is going to be loving and he's going to be forgiving and you can repent and all these things that God still love you. And then as soon as you commit that sin, he's going, oh, you're such a terrible person. How, could, how can you call yourself a Christian for, after you've done something like that? And he works both sides of the fence on us. And we fall for it so often. But idolatry is anything placed above God. All right? Which in their day was mostly big statues. But even in their day, it was the same thing. I could have put my work on my farm above God. Now, God, I can't, go, I can't go three times to the temple because I am too busy taking care of my animals and my flock. Look, idol. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't have this big idol in, in my yard, but... My farm now is my, my idol. You know, anything could become an idol so easily. You know, and just like sin is anything I think, say, or do against God. And that's the critical part. Think, say, and do. Now that think part is what gets most of us. Because you know, we like to go, God, I didn't do anything, and I didn't say anything. I managed to keep my tongue in check. And God says, but boy, you're thinking, but your thinking sure wasn't there. You know, and most of us can't keep our mouth in. We might be able to control our doing, but our mouth and our thinking usually gets us into a lot of trouble. And especially our thinking, because whatever we think about, whatever's in our heart, will eventually be spoken. And if we speak it long enough, we will start doing it. And this is the problem with sin. It starts as just a mental problem. Well, you know what, God, yeah, I'm not going to go out and drink, but boy, I really, I really want to go out and drink with my friends and just be mellowed out and, and forget my problems for a while. And, and we think about it, we think about it, we think about it, and the next thing we know, we're doing it. You know, or I really have this problem. You know, and, it, and it's not that we don't want to think about it, but we need to turn them over to God immediately and repent and say, God, I need your strength. Because any one of us can fall. And any one of us will fall in any area of our life. And unfortunately, the area that we're most likely to fall in is whatever we think we're strongest in. Reason being, we don't put a lot of guard on that. God, I would never do. Never in, never in a million years would I do that. So we put guards on everything else, and we don't put a guard on, on that area of our life. <laughs> But you know, the, when an evangelist falls you know, for adultery, I will almost probably tell you that they would, at some point in their life they would say, I would never cheat on my wife. Never in a million years. So they don't put a guard on that. And then they start doing stupid things. Hanging out with women you know, without people around and getting attached to them. Not for, not for any reason, but just they're being nice to them, and they're counseling them, and they're helping them, and there starts to be an attachment coming together, and then eventually things get out of hand. But they said, I'd never let this do it. Somebody goes, well, I would never go out and, and get drunk. But under the right circumstances, you don't know what you would do. 
get enough pressure, enough you know, peer pressure, enough bad days, and all of a sudden you go, and you know, you take that first drink and it felt a little good, you know, and, and you felt that buzz and it felt, you know, you started forgetting a little bit and the next thing you know, it's taken over your life. We need to be careful to, to have nothing in our life that's, that we will say, I would never do whatever. And I've shared with you, when I was a teenager, I would have told you I would never not go to church. And then I got into workaholism. And church kind of just went off the wayside. Not on purpose. I just got busy. And then I got into a pity party when nobody missed me after three weeks. And then that really touched it off. You know, oh, nobody cares about me. You know, and, you know, and I know it was me. Satan used that to bring me into pity. But we need to be very careful because it's easy to fall where we think we're strong. And we want to be very careful that we don't ever think that I'm so strong in any area of my life that I don't have to put up uh, guards and, and walls. Verse 7 is an interesting one. For your shame you shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. This is kind of an interesting verse. He goes, for your shame, this is pretty easy, there should be a comma here, you shall receive double. Right? You have gone through hard times, God will bless you. God always talks about double inheritance for, for the firstborn. And he says, when we suffer, he's got a reward out there for us. So for their shame, for your shame, you shall receive double blessings. In other words, whatever I go through, God's going to reward. But he's talking about Israel. In this case, it's Israel, but it's saying, yeah. actually, the your is whoever he's talking about. If it's the millennial kingdom, it's Israel. If we're talking about the church at this point, it's us. But God blesses. And as Paul put it, what are the light afflictions of this world in comparison to heaven? Now, the good news is God gives us rewards here on earth. But it's even the rewards we have here on earth are nothing compared to what we have in heaven. Now, what those rewards are in heaven, I have no idea. But you know what? If God's giving out rewards, I want as many rewards as I can get. Because I don't know what they are, but you know what? I know that the reward from God is going to be worth it. So he doesn't really tell us what these rewards are. But you know, if God's giving them out... He's not giving out white elephant gifts. He's not giving out things that we don't want. His reward is going to be something like, wow, God, I never expected anything like this. What they're going to be, we don't know. Paul talked about crowns of life and crowns of victory, you know, the soul winner's crown and all these different things. You know, just, you know, but what does that mean for us? I don't know. You know his crown was the, the winners of the Olympic Games getting their, their reef and he goes, you, people work hard for the perishing crowns. We work for the non-perishing. What we're going to get from God is eternal. And I don't know what it means to have a gift. Because we would taint everything with our pride and our desire for possessions down here. God, I want rewards. I want rewards so that I can be lifted up. What does a reward mean in heaven? I have no idea. Well, earthly rewards in heaven. He's giving us great earthly rewards as Christians. And he's going, I've got really good rewards for you coming. 
even there is a double portion rewarded here and in heaven. So there's a double portion right there. And the one in heaven is going to be big and good and valuable. Now, what is valuable in heaven? I don't know. The streets are made out of gold and the gates are made out of pearls and there's jazz, you know, uh, precious stones everywhere. And God's going to reward us with something that makes those things look insignificant. Who knows what they're going to be? You know, positions, he talks about positions in heaven. He says that if you're faithful on earth, you, you would get more. You'd be ruler, ruler over cities. So we will have positions of authority. There will be teachers, I'm sure, in heaven. There's going to be all kinds of positions in heaven, and part of that will be the rewards. Not always, yeah. and very rarely. Yeah. Sometimes it could be when you lead somebody to the Lord, yeah. there's a great blessing in that and an excitement. Yeah. You know, you got, to, you got to be able to lead this person to Christ and see their life change. Part of my great blessing is when I teach and see people's lives changed. To me, that's a great reward. They were martyred. Uh, they were poor. So it's not just uh, riches. It could be just watching God work through you. Now, Paul said he knew what it meant to be have much and have little. So there were times when he was blessed and had much, at least by whatever his standard of much was. And one of the great things about getting to know God is how often he presents, for you, uh, presents you with physical riches. When you need something, all of a sudden God says, oh, you need to pay this bill? Here, here's some money. As long as you're not just being lazy and depending on him, he'll go, here it is. Could be that when you're down, he wants to see how you react on that too. A lot of it. And I mean, so really, it's like, are you going to be thankful to himself if you put it down? Or are you going to, you know, go crazy? A lot of times that's exactly what the, the reason we go through tests. God's saying, are you still going to trust me when it looks like you're not being blessed or being covered? Uh, One of the lines in uh, God's Not Dead 2 is when he says, you're a teacher, you should know that when when the students are testing, the teacher stands back. And God does that with us. There's times when he stands back from us when we're going through the test. He goes, I've been teaching you. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand and say, I believe you, God, even when it looks like nothing's working out? And that's when it's hard. It's easy to follow God when everything's going good. God, you're blessing me. I've got lots of money. I'm being blessed. Uh, There's no problems. It is more difficult to trust God when it looks like everything's going wrong. And then we start to forget that God works all things together for good. We forget that he's sovereign. We start worrying and we're going, God, I just don't know what to do. I, I'm, I, everything's going wrong. And we all go through those times. And the attitude that we have is going to be, what are we going to do? Are we going to hold on to God and his truth that he's got everything under control and that all things work together for good? You know, God, I'm going broke. You know, I'm going to, you know, I've lost all my money and all my stuff. What are we going to do? And God says, trust me. And we're going, God, uh, uh, 
I think you've lost your marbles here. Nothing, nothing is going right. And God says, trust me. And then he comes through, usually at the last possible moment. After, you know, after we've made our bad decisions, and he says, well, if you'd have just waited, I had a gift for you. And we go, God, I waited as long as I could. And God goes, no, you didn't wait as long as you could. You, I, would have, I would have stepped in before you, you had reached that point. And this is the hard thing for us, to trust God completely. How much do we trust God? When everything seems to be going wrong, do we trust him? Or is that when we say, okay, God, I've got to do what I've got to do, and whatever that might mean. You know, if for some people, if they've been, been a thief in the past, they may go, well, I'll just go, go back to thievery because I've got to take care of myself. God, I just, I can't handle the pressure anymore. I'm going back to my drugs and my alcohol. God, I'm going to take out a big loan to pay off all these bills that are violating up because I'm going to trust in what I can do. You know, all those things end up being sin because we do our way above God's way. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go out and work and solve our problems, but we don't do things in our own strength that are wrong. And this is where we have to be careful because it's easy to justify what I do. God, you forgot about me. I'm going to do what I know how to do to fix this problem. Oh, we'll help us justify it. You know, we're real good at blaming each other. And it says that in their land they shall possess double of their confusion. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Do you know when we come to God, he gives us everlasting joy? And this is the beauty of being his child. He gives us a peace that passes understanding. He gives us a deep joy in our life. And joy is much deeper than happiness. Happiness is I get happy and I get sad depending on what's going on. But you know, even when we're sad, we can have joy in our life because God is still in control. And as long as my focus is on God, I can have joy. And it's important for that to happen. Then in verse 8 it says, For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offerings, and I will direct their work in truth. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. This is kind of an interesting thing. God says, I love judgment. This is one of his characteristics. He is holy. He is righteous. He wants honest judgment. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross, because God's holy, righteous, just attributes had to be fulfilled. He could not just say, okay, people, I forgive you. You're, you're a terrible, awful people, and I just forgive you. Because he said there has to be punishment. Jesus came to take that punishment so God now can go and say, I forgive you. I forgive you because of what my son did for you. And then in this kind of an interesting thing, he says, I hate robbery for burnt offerings. This is kind of an interesting statement that God makes. In 1 Chronicles 21, 18 to 27, David is getting ready to buy a field to put the tabernacle in. And he says, I'm going to give an offering. So the owner of the field says, I will give you the field. I will give you the oxen. I will give you everything you need to, to do this sacrifice. And David said to the man, 
I must pay for it. I cannot give God something that I did not work for or cost me anything. The point of this being is when we give a sacrifice to God, what does it cost us? Now, am I giving God my, my tithes and offerings and, and giving him my excess? Or am I actually sacrificing anything? I heard a pastor one time says, how much should your tithe and offering be? Whatever you can't afford. Because it's not a sacrifice until you get to that point. If all you're doing is doing what the Pharisees said, you know, when Jesus sat outside the temple watching them put money in the offering, he goes, he wants people putting bags and bags of money in there. And he said, no, they're nothing. They're giving out of their surplus. They're not even missing it. And this one woman comes up and gives two pennies. And Jesus said, she just gave all that she had. First uh, Chronicles 21, 18 through 27. What did I say? I think you said it right. Okay. I wrote it backwards. Oh, okay. <laughs> 21, 18. 18 through 27. And this is David getting ready to build, uh, buy a field for the, this is after um, they touched the ark and was slain and, and uh, David said, I'm not bringing the ark into Jerusalem after all. And he left it there. That man was getting blessed. And then David said he's going to bring it back. And so he went out to buy the field. And he said, I, no, I can't give God something that doesn't cost me anything. It's easy for some people to give God what doesn't cost them anything. You know, some people say, well, I give God my time. Okay, has, has your time cost you anything? Well, no, I don't work. I, I can give God all the time I want. Well, how much are you giving? Well, you know, a couple hours a week. Okay, you're, you're being very generous there. You know, God, I've given you, you know, I give you $5 a week. And God says, wow, you're, you're really, is, is that, and for some people, $5 a week may be a huge offering and a sacrifice. For some people, $5, that's it. You know, what does our sacrifice to God cost us? It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost and this is why it's important for us to understand. Some people can give a tenth of their income and never miss it. Some people, God says, I want you to give much more. And you know, when you're at the much more, it gets interesting because then when things get tight, you say, well, I can always bounce back to 10% and I'll be giving, I'll be giving God what he asked for. You know, when t things get tight and you're going, oh, this would be a sacrifice. That's when it gets interesting to give to God. And whatever it is that you're giving to God needs to cost something. Needs to be a costly gift. Otherwise, it's not even a gift. All right, God, I'm giving you, eh, I'm not going to miss it anyway. God, it's yours. And we want to be careful that we don't ever get there. God says he hates that kind of sacrifice. He considers it robbery. You know, if it doesn't cost you anything, he's, he's saying you're, not, you're robbing yourself. We're robbing ourselves of the blessing of sacrifice, which is one of the reasons the sacrifices were big. In the, in, the, in the temple. You were to, if you could afford it, you gave an oxen. Well, taking an ox out of your, your herd is a big deal. Taking a few sheep out of your herd could be a big deal unless you had thousands and thousands of them. You know, we read about Solomon's gifts to God, and they were big gifts. I'm not sure that even his big gifts though, were a sacrifice. They sound impressive to us. He offers a thousand sheep. Well, with his wealth, he probably never missed them. So were they, were they a sacrifice? Did he have his father's desire 
the same desire as his father to honor God with everything? I'm not going to say yes or no. It sounds an impressive number to us. But, you know, we want to be careful. God says, I don't want sacrifices that don't cost. And whatever our sacrifice is, whether it's time, finances, material, you know, how about our reputation? You know, I know a person who got so mad because they were accused of something they didn't do and they just went nuts over it. Boy, they really ruined their, their reputation. They had the bad one against it and then they went nuts and totally destroyed their reputation for God. Are we, and that doesn't mean we just let people get away with trashing us, but at the same token, how do we respond? You know, God is our defender. He's, our, he's the one who will take revenge for us. And you know, one thing I have learned over the years is the more I let God be my defender, the better off I am. All right, God, these people are saying bad things about me. You go get them. I'm just going to sit back and watch you. Now, having said that, I've also watched God really rip lives apart in the same way, things that I would never do or even want. But the one thing I know is that God knows what he has to do to get that person's attention. And we need to be very careful about all of this. He says, and the second part of that is, I will direct their work in truth. God promises us if we listen and we wait, he will direct. He will direct and he will make an everlasting covenant. One thing I'm hoping you're seeing on, on, as we go through the scripture is most everything about our life, God says he's going he's gonna to do which takes a lot of pressure off me. I don't have to make myself righteous. I don't have to try to find the best path. I don't have to try and make things happen. God will do them. Now that means I have to be listening. It does mean that I have to push on some doors and, and make some moves. It, do, it doesn't just say sit in my butt until God magically drops the house on me and, and makes things happen. He says, but he will make things happen. He will make them work out. I go out and I, and I walk. I follow and I listen. And will we make mistakes at time? Yes. But ultimately, God is the one that does it. He justifies us. He clothes us in righteousness. He baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. He makes us righteous. He renews our mind. You know, we can go down this list all, over, all through the places. He's the one that makes the changes. And the more he renews my mind, the more I start hearing his voice and doing what he wants me to do. The less my mind's renewed, the harder it is to follow God and do what he wants because I'm still thinking in the flesh. And all the time when we get in trouble, myself included, when I get in trouble, it's because my flesh has led me down the wrong path. I'm doing what I think is best and I didn't consult God, I didn't listen for God, I, didn't, I just said, well, this is what I think I'm gonna go do. And I go running down that path and find out that it's a false path. And I don't know how many people have ever wandered out in the woods or something. You start following what looks like a path, and all of a sudden it ends. And you turn around and the path doesn't look the same the other direction. It looks like a wilderness. And, you're, and all of a sudden you're pretty much lost, at least momentarily. We, our flesh will lead us down those kind of paths all the time. We're going down what really looks like a path, it looks like a good path, and it leads to quicksand. It leads to a pit. 
and we fall into the pit before we even know it's there. And then if we're smart, we repent and ask God to help us. He lifts us out and puts us back on the path where we're supposed to be. And we get embarrassed because we fell into the quicksand in the pit and made a mess out of everything. And God had to rescue us. And I don't know why we as human beings get embarrassed when God has to rescue us. Yes, we made some stupid ideas and our pride gets hurt. But you know, he's the shepherd and he knows that we're dumb sheep. He knows he's going to have to rescue us from the pits. He knows when we, when we drink water from that fast-running stream, we're going to fall f- over into the water. He knows that we're going to do these things because he knows that we don't always listen to the shepherd. And we get off on the paths in the wrong direction. He knows that. And he's not blaming us for being sheep. Now, he would like us to be the good sheep that stays with the rest of the flock and with him. But he knows that every sheep is going to run off on its own at some point and do its own thing. And Jesus is the good shepherd who says, okay, back over here. Back over here. I know you're afraid because you got away from the, from the flock, but get back over here with the flock. Yeah. And these are what, what comes up. He makes an everlasting covenant. Verse 9 says, And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the, of the people all that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed of the Lord which the Lord has blessed. We as Christians are we seen as righteous. What did they tell us in the Bible? They looked at the disciples and they took note. Number one, they were unlearned but they had walked with Jesus. Now unlearned does not mean they weren't educated. Did not mean that they didn't know business. It meant that they had not sit in rabbinical school learning the Bible. All right? When they looked at the disciples, they're kind of looking at the same way. Uh, who is it that taught these guys? They didn't, they didn't go to the, the rabbi school and get trained. And yet, they know the word of God. And they go, they walked with Jesus. We walk with Jesus. We get to know his word. The Holy Spirit says this is, teaches us. And we can be taught with the Holy Spirit alone. That doesn't mean we don't need to go to church and Bible studies because we learn a lot faster by being taught by a good teacher. But you know, we can learn just from what the Holy Spirit teaches us. My greatest example is when I was a teenager, I asked God, what do these verses mean? Because I was confused. I had two different churches telling me they meant two different things. And I'm going, God, I don't understand. What does this mean? And the Holy Spirit told me what it meant. Now, it wasn't until about five years later when I was in Bible college and learned how to do some further study that I started realizing the Holy Spirit knew exactly what he, knew, what he meant. And I had heard him correctly, but now I can defend it. Trust in what God teaches you as long as it matches up with the rest of Scripture. Now, if you're hearing a voice that's telling you that something is different from the rest of Scripture, it's not the, it's not the Holy Spirit teaching you. It's your own flesh or even the demon world. If it's contrary to Scripture, it is not true. God is never contrary to Scripture. He will never tell you to do something that's contrary to Scripture. Ever. He has a reason for it. You know, so he's going to say this. When people have come up to me and go, I think I'm supposed to marry this person. Are they a Christian? Well, I don't think so. Then God didn't tell you. Plain and simple. He did not tell you to do so. 
know, it's, it's real simple. You know, well, I think God wants me to go to the bar and drink every night. Well, are you getting drunk? Yep, God didn't tell you to do that. <laughs> well, I think God wants me to have fun, so I'm going to go out and commit adultery. Nope, you're not listening to the right spirit. It's contrary to the scriptures. You know that it's wrong. Plain and simple. And we want to be careful of that. And it says, we should be recognized as being his. People should know that there's something different about us. Now, they may think that we are weird and strange and, and very unusual, which we are. We're a peculiar treasure, a strange people, the called of God, and we don't live the way the world does. Christians are truly countercultural. The world wants to do what's wrong. We want to do what God says is right. And in our day and age, that makes us weird. We have a right and wrong. We have a structure that says we're going to do what God says. And people look at you and go, oh, you got right and wrong. That makes you weird. You're listening to somebody other than yourself. That makes you weird. You're not doing what everybody else does. That makes you weird. You know, we look strange to the world. And if you can think back before you were a Christian, you probably thought Christians were pretty weird. They didn't drink. They didn't do drugs, at least the ones who were truly Christians. You know, they were pretty happy most of the time. And you looked at them and go, there must be something wrong with them. Now, maybe if you were into drugs, you go, I want that drug. They've got, they've got some really good drug. I want what they, it doesn't seem to have the side effects of what I'm on. You know, but we didn't, they didn't understand. What is it that made that person so different? And we should be the urban life that people look at and say, I really don't know what they're on. I don't know what they have, but I think I want it. I think I want it being recognized by the world that we walk with God, that we are different. There's only two more verses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. <laughs> their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. I read that one. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He hath clothed me in the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as the bride adorns herself with jewels. This is the beauty of what God does for him. We come to him and we rejoice in him. That's, that's our part. We rejoice. And it says greatly rejoice, but you know, we rejoice in him. And what it says he does, he clothes us in righteousness. He clothes us in salvation. What a beautiful thing on that. And as his picture goes, as the bridegroom adorns himself and as the bride adorns herself. Now, this is something that still happens in our day and age. And it's happened all through history. The groom dresses up in his best finery. For us in this day, tucks or at the very least a suit. And the bride comes down in that beautiful white garment and the veil and the, and the jewelry and all that stuff and nobody can take their eyes off the bride. Especially that poor groom standing up front. You know, that poor groom sees nothing else. I know. That's what I saw. I didn't see anybody else in that, in that entire building. You know, you've been standing up front listening to the priest, uh, the priest, the pastor giving us our vows. I didn't, I didn't hear much of anything else. My eyes were completely on my wife. Is that how we really feel about God? 
We are the bride of Christ, adorned for a wedding that he clothes us for, and Jesus is the groom. Now, I don't know if the woman's eyes are completely on the groom or not. I would hope so, but you know, for her, that's her big day. That's what she's dreamed about all her life. You know, so I don't know it from the wife's point of view. But I know from the groom's point of view, the bride is all he sees. And I can picture how Jesus looks at his bride. He looks at us and says, I just can't wait. I want my bride here, Father. When is it time to go get her? You know, I can almost picture Jesus up in heaven looking at the Father you know, from our perspective every day. Is it time yet? Okay, how much longer? How much longer till I go get my bride? You know, because he's waiting. He paid a great price for it. He's gone to heaven and he told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, which is what the, bride, what the bridegroom was to do. They had their vows of their promise to, to be faithful. The groom would then go off and build the home and build his, build his job up so he could support his bride. And then one day, usually within a year, he would go kidnap his bride and take her for a week-long feast that would end up in there uh, consummating the marriage. Jesus is waiting for that period. Waiting for that period to come get his bride and have the feast. Uh, the wedding feast up in heaven. And then in the other last part of verse 11, for the earth brings, for as the earth brings forth her bud and the garden causes the things that are sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up, spring forth before all the nations. Again, we see God causes righteousness. When we turn over to him, he will change us and he will make us righteous. And he will make our righteousness come out. He just doesn't say, I'm clothing you in righteousness, I see you as righteous. He says, because you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, you will become righteous. Just as the garden produces, produces plants, unless I plant it. If I plant it, it dies. <laughs> but normally, people plant a garden and something grows. <laughs> and God says, just as a true garden produces, and what does the gardener do? Well, he takes the weeds out once in a while, he waters it, and the plants grow. God says, I will cause righteousness to sprout up. Hopefully we see that in our lives. As we walk more and more with God, he makes us more and more righteous. And it's not, I've said this over and over, it's not you and me making the changes. It's just God changing us, and we, go, and we look back and go, I don't even want to do the things I used to do. I don't even, don't even think about doing those bad things anymore. Now, God has shown me a lot of other bad things I need to get rid of, but I don't think about the other things that, I, that he's taken out. And this is the important thing. God does the work. This is what it means to be a Christian and being the sheep. The shepherd takes care of every need that we have. He feeds us. He waters us. He gives us good, good ground, soft ground to walk on in the meadows. He gives us the right place. He puts protection around us. When it's nighttime, he puts us in the, pen, the sheep pen, which is protected, and then he's the door. He sleeps at the door so nobody can get out or in. This is what he does. He does everything. All we do is accept his gift and then let him work. That is the beauty of Christianity. I don't have to do anything other than accept him because he makes the change. 
And again, it's not that I just sit around saying, okay, God, you know, I'm your puppet, move me wherever you want. But in one sense, it is. God, show me where to go. Tell me what to do. And we open our mouth, and he fills our mouth with words. We wander about, and he brings us in the right place. Have you ever been at the right place, and you didn't even know it until you got there? You know, there's times I've been someplace, I'm going, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't want to be here, and there's somebody to talk to about the Bible, about God. You know, God ordains our steps. Even when we have no idea what's going on, he will ordain our steps. Lord, we just thank you for this day and evening. Lord, help us to always trust in you who will do the work. You're the one that cares for us. You're the one that follows us. We ask you to bless us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.